And as we continue today in our study through the book of Philippians, um, basically we're transitioning now from the philosophy of Christian living that Paul covered in chapter 1. Now today in chapter 2, we're going to look at the pattern for Christian living. And so, you know, uh, a couple weeks ago as we uh, finishing up there in chapter 1, Paul, just summing up the philosophy of the Christian life in Philippians 1.21, where he says there, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, you know, Jesus gave us a perfect picture of what that looks like in Matthew's gospel. We'll put it up on the screen for you. He was, he was given a parable about a guy who found hidden treasure. Here's what he said. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid for joy over it. He goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. And really, that's just the, the picture of the philosophy of the Christian life, that we've discovered the hidden treasure of Jesus Christ, and nothing compares. Nothing else matters, and we have, we have a, 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 an understanding of, of, you know, on what I like to call the matter meter, what, what rates on the matter meter and what doesn't. And, and this is what allowed Paul to be able to say, hey, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this is the big idea of the Christian faith, man. The hope of heaven shapes our philosophical worldview, and it results in joy. And we've been talking about this, joy being the central theme of the book of Philippians, and that joy is different than happiness. Happiness is dependent on your circumstances. Joy ain't. Uh, it's not dependent on your circumstances. And this joy comes just from finding that treasure in Christ. That joy carries us through dark days. It comforts us in times of grief and sorrow. And and it's a hope, it's a joyful hope that gives us confidence to trust Jesus no matter what. And if you ever doubted that, man, yesterday I had the privilege of attending a three-hour funeral service. I've never been to a funeral service. 20 years of ministry, I have never been to a three-hour funeral service. And can I just tell you, after three hours, everybody was riveted. And the reason they were riveted was because the, the, the funeral service for a, a man of God, Pastor Brent Yim, who went home to be with the Lord last week, his funeral service yesterday at the conference center, and he was a lo- man who lived his life in the joy of the Lord. As a matter of fact, this, this philosophical Christian life verse there in Philippians 1.21 that was on the cover of his memorial sheet yesterday, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when you taste and see that the Lord indeed is good, it changes your whole philosophy on life. Well, today as we transition into chapter 2, Paul's transitioning from the philosophy of Christian living to the pattern of Christian living. It's it's the the fundamental issue of, hey, okay, that's that's what the hope is, but here's the pattern for how you get there. This is, this is the pattern of, uh, that, that we're to follow. This is what we're to, to look to. And, and just as he, he can sum up that whole philosophy in one verse in chapter 1, uh, here in chapter 2, he sums up this whole pattern of Christian living in one verse as well. If, you, if we can start here, if you look at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, here's what Paul says. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And I like the way the New Living Translation paraphrases this verse. I'll throw it up on the screen for you. Here's how it reads. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. This is the pattern 
for Christian living. And the big idea and the big, the, you know, the, the, the big E on the eye chart today for the message is humility. It's humbleness. Now, let me just tell you this. Just say right up front, let's acknowledge it. Humility ain't popular. It, is, it doesn't play well. It is not natural to the world. It is uh, hugely unpopular. It's largely unwelcomed. And, and frankly, this is true even in the church. When you start talking about issues of humility, we might give it lip service, but nobody really truly appreciates this idea of humility. The reason is very simple, by the way. Humility requires that you die to yourself. And we are all, frankly, too selfish and self-centered to really appreciate the fact that we have to die to ourselves. We will fight against it as long and as hard as we can. And the issue is, is that this is intrinsic in ourselves, in our human nature, that we're selfish and self-centered. And the whole world exists, boy, for self-help, self-esteem, self-love, self-actualization. This is how the world, you know, revolves. And there are examples everywhere. They abound throughout uh, society. They abound in the world. I, I, I hardly have to give you an example, but I can't resist because as I'm putting the message together, I'm reading a news story, and it's like this right here is just the perfect picture of what I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> this contrasting of humility versus pride. And, and you, 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 you look in the news right now, and there's a story coming out uh, of Giles County, Virginia, and uh, in the U.S. District Court, the ACLU ha- has uh, uh, brought um, a suit against Narrows High School, uh, which is in Giles County, Virginia. And Narrows High School has had the audacity to put the Ten Commandments up on the school's wall. And the ACLU uh, somehow thinks that's a violation of civil liberties. And so they've brought suit in federal court. Now, U.S. District Court Judge uh, Michael Urbanski had a, what he thought, a wonderful idea and compromise to deal with the situation. He basically said, look, as I understand it, the issue that you folks have at, in the ACLU, your issue is God. And so let's just do this. Let's not post the first four commandments. Let's just post the last six commandments. He actually floated this out as a compromise. Now, you know, if you've been in the church for a while, you you have an understanding of the Ten Commandments in that the first four commandments are the commandments that center on our relationship with God and the last six center around our relationship with mankind. And so, you know, the first commandment is, man, there's one God. You worship Him. The second commandment is you're not supposed to have any idols. You know, the third commandment is that you're not to take the Lord's name in vain. The fourth commandment is that you're to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And, and so these four commandments, this, this judge says, well, let's just omit those. Because then, really, you know, we, we want these kids, practically speaking, to be exhorted to, to a, a morality. And the last six really do that. You know, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. The sixth commandment, don't murder. Seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. You know how you remember that one, by the way? These two stay away from these five. That's don't commit adultery, right? And, <laughs> and so, you know, the eighth commandment is like, you know, don't steal. Uh, you know, the, 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 the ninth commandment is that you're not supposed to bear false witness against someone. You're not supposed to lie. The tenth commandment, you're not supposed to covet. And so the judge says, hey, these, these last six, they're, they're okay. We'll just remove the first four. Well, 
that's just absolutely a ridiculous statement because if you remove the first four, there's no way on God's green earth that you're ever going to keep the last six. But more importantly, and more to the point about this issue of pride and humility, what this judge has just articulated is not a new thought. It's actually a very prideful thought that originated with Satan. Now, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you in Isaiah chapter 14. Beginning in verse 12, what we have here is an account of the fall of Lucifer. And here's how it reads. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. And now now it's going to go through what we call the five I will statements of Satan. And here's how it reads. It says, for God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, for you have said in your heart, number one, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Satan in his pride saying, I will be God. And I will remove God out of the picture. And ever since, this has been the the condition of fallen man. Fallen man, from the beginning of, of, you know, from from the point with which we fell, fallen man has tried to remove God ever since and say, I will be God. And this is the constant temptation of our flesh. This is the motivation of this federal judge. Hey, you can be God. We'll just take God out of the picture and you honor your father and mother. And you don't murder. And you don't commit adultery. And so this is the constant push. This is the constant tension. Hey, in pride, you can be God. Now, the scary thing about this is that the Bible says that God resists the proud, but that he gives grace to the humble. See, the antidote to pride is humility. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, both say the same thing. They both say God resists the proud, but that he gives grace to the humble. Now, if you're a note taker, that word resists there. God resists the proud. The idea is this. In the Greek, the word is, is antitasso. And what it literally means, it's a military term, and it means to line up against And so the idea is that if you're proud, militarily, God is going to line up against you. I don't know if if you're like me. I love to watch the, you know, these these war uh, documentaries. I mean, you know, if you go check my Netflix, it's like just all war documentaries. I'm looking at all these things. And you see these accounts, these tank battles and such. And there's one where, the, you know, these Israeli tank commanders, they're lined up and all of a sudden over the hill, it's like a bad movie, man. All of these Syrian tanks, just tons of them coming against them. And it is truly David and Goliath. And, of course, the, the Israelis, you know, kicked their butts. Yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So, um, but the idea is, man, if you're proud, God's going to line up against you. Now, that's a scary thought. That's a sobering thought, right? But, man, God gives grace to the humble. And, again, if you're a note taker, that word grace, um, man, it's uh, a Greek word, it, charis. We get the word charity from that. And it is by definition unearned, unmerited, undeserved. And so, man, if, if we would humble ourselves, 
get this, this picture that, that God is going to resist the proud, but he's going to give grace to the humble. Man, it is absolutely essential for the practical how-to of how to live the Christian life. Now, Paul begins. We'll back it up now to, uh, to verse 1. And he says, therefore, in verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he says, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, Paul uses the word if here, um, but he's using it in a rhetorical sense. Um, It's like saying, you know, if water is wet, if rocks are hard, if fire is hot. And of course, you know, the point being, of course it is. And that's Paul's point here. Paul's saying, listen, because we have received consolation of Christ, comfort of his love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and mercy of God extended to us through Jesus Christ, because Paul is saying that we've received these things, by the way, even when we least deserved it, Paul's saying, because we have, now we have an obligation as Christian follow, as followers of Christ, as Christians. We have an obligation because God has loved us in that way. Our obligation is to extend that to others in a humble attitude. Now, there's just one problem with that. People are lame. That's the problem. People are lame. Now, lame's the tamest word I can use from the pulpit, but you know that people are lame, right? And you, we encounter it all the time. Now, on a good day, I can maybe extend consolation, comfort, fellowship, affection, and mercy, you know, maybe to my grandkids, you know, on a good day. But man, you know, when you tell me that I got to act this way to my knucklehead neighbor who, you know, lets her dog bark all night long. This is not me. I'm hypothetically throwing this out in case my neighbor's listening. Your dogs are great. Um, (laughs) Honest, I'm not so... Uh, but, you know, if I've got to extend this to my boss who drives me crazy, or if I've got to extend this to that coworker that just makes me just lose it, or, you know, to that, you know, PTA Nazi that I work with, or whatever the case is, right? If, if, I've, if I have to extend, man, this obligation to love others, then it becomes a little bit more tricky, right? This, this last Friday, I... I um, I prepare the messages for my Sunday message. I prepare Friday and Saturday. Basically, throughout the week, I'm reading the text, just sort of soaking in it. And then Friday and Saturday, I put the message together. So usually, phone's off, don't call, don't write. I'm in the office. And so I'm in the office. I'm working on it. Well, it dawns on me that today is Mother's Day. And I'm like, well, I haven't gotten Brenda anything. And, uh, and so, in, in, you know, just a little insight into my wife, Mother's Day is like the biggest deal for her, bigger than her birthday, bigger than Christmas, bigger than, I learned that the hard way, but it's important to her, right? I've been married 27 years for a reason, so I'm like, okay, I got to go get her something for Mother's Day. And a guy says, well, she ain't your mom. Well, she's the mom of my kids. I'm going to get her something. So I go out on Friday. And I'm, and I'm in a hurry because, man, I, I, gotta get, I got work to do. I'm, 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 I left my office to come do this. I got to go back to work. So I'm in the, I'm in the I know you say it like something new, Pastor Ted. I'm always in a hurry, but I'm, I'm, I'm really in a hurry this time. So I go in there and, I, and, I'm, and I'm looking for the thing. Well, they don't have it out on the floor. The guy's got to go in the back. And he's got to get it. And I'm like, come on, man. And he brings it out. Very helpful. So I finally, I get to the, to the checkout stand and I'm, I'm there at the, at the checkout aisle. And, uh, and, Doggone it, wouldn't you know, the guy in front of me, you know, 
He's, he's filling out a credit card application. And this gal is just going on it. Well, and this is a pert, and you can go to this website, and you can enter in this code. And I'm like, who cares about the stupid code? Let's go. I got a message on humility to put together. Come on. It gets worse. So I'm there, and she takes forever. And then she says to me, after she finally finishes with him, oh, I'm sorry, I need to go on my break now. I'm like, God, are you punking me right now? What is it? I didn't even have that thought. I'm just like, do you know how long I've been standing here? I'm just like, you know, completely blowing it. And, uh, oh, we'll get somebody else to help you. And the Lord immediately speaking to me saying, uh, there's a little handy illustration for you, Pastor Ted, about humility. Not. You know, people are lame, man. And we're called, man, we're called to exercise humility. And it, and it just, it's not easy, Right? I mean, you guys know it's not easy. So Paul's going to give us, he's going to go on now, he's going to give us keys uh, in three areas to focus on so that we can, you know, practically manifest uh, humility. We're going to look at, uh, if you're if you note uh, taker, we're going to look at our mind, our motives, and our master. These are the three keys that, the, that Paul gives to us here in our text. Verse 3, <clears throat> Paul says this. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, in humility, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Now, can I just shorthand this? Can we all just stipulate to the fact that we are selfish and self-centered? Can we just agree to that? So, I mean, I don't need to belabor the point, right? You moms who stood up, you don't have to teach your kids. No, no say, say after me, say mine. Say mine. No, no, here's what you do. Now, um, you push him down like this, and you take the toy like this, and now you say mine. Now, here, you do it. You try, right? You, you, didn't, you did not have to do that with your kids, right? So we can just stipulate to the fact that we are selfish and self-centered. We are, right? And so we're profoundly selfish, and that's how our brains are wired from birth. By the way, uh, it just occurs to me, and I got to share because it it's funny, Micah, Pastor Cody's wife, she posts about her kids. She's like, you know, they're playing with imaginary keys and the one takes the imaginary keys from the other and the other's now melting down. And so Micah, being a smart mom, says, well, here, you can have my imaginary keys. Problem solved, right? So our brains are wired in such a way that, man, (sighs) we're selfish and self-centered. It's the way we come out of the womb. And because our brains are wired that way, Paul starts off with the key for, listen, if you're going to be humble, you have to understand that the natural inclination of your mind is nowhere near humility. It's not in the same zip code. It's not in the same state. It's not in the same country. It's not in the same hemisphere. The natural inclination of your mind is selfishness, self-centeredness. And so you have to change your mind if you're going to be humble. And so he starts off with, hey, be 
humble, be lowly of mind. Now, the human mind is a fascinating thing. Absolutely fascinating. I, I just finished reading a book. It's called The Power of Habit. It was written by a guy by the name of Charles Duhigg. Uh, it's put out by Random House. They just issued it last month. Great book. And, and the, the, the basic premise of this book, it's a study on how human habit patterns are formed. Uh, and basically, the book details that foundational to our daily habits is a process by which your brain converts sequences of actions into set routines. And, and the process is controlled by a thing called the basal ganglia. Now, the basal ganglia is this thing. It's about the size of a golf ball, and it sits right in the center of your skull, right? Right in the center of your brain. Now, here's what the basal ganglia does. It takes information, and, and, it, and it, it packages it all together so that this thing that once required a lot of thought and effort now becomes something that you can do mindlessly, right? The scientists call this action chunking. Now, back in the day, we called chunking something else, but the scientists call this, this thing chunking. Now, here's how this works. So using an illustration, let's say you're driving your car. And uh, you ever taught a teenager to drive? That's a treat, right? And so when you're first learning how to drive, you, you know, it, there's a lot of coordination involved there. Um, now, take the action of backing your car out of the driveway. You, you know, you have to figure out putting it in gear, keeping your foot on the gas, driving in your mirrors, you know, steering in reverse order. If you're driving a stick shift, you get to add all that fun to it as well. And when you're first starting, this requires a lot of thought and effort, right? And if you had electronic uh, sensors hooked up to your brain, it would show that, that your, your brain is, you know, just high level of activity as you're learning these things. Well, then what happens is your basal ganglia, over time, takes all this information and it, and it chunks it so that pretty soon when you do this activity, it's a habit. And now if when that has happened, they you know, were to put these sensors on your head, what they would find is that your brain activity, where it was once way up here, it's now barely registering. And, and you know how this works. You ever driven like to work? You're halfway there and you're like, I just don't remember the last 10 miles of driving, right? That's because your basal ganglia has chunked all that together. When you back out of your driveway, you don't think about it. You do it, you go, and, and this is because everything has chunked together. Well, God has designed our brains this way. The reason is, is because, you know, we need to... <laughs> learn to grow, to advance in life. Imagine if every skill that you learned for the rest of your life, you had to approach it the same way that when you first did it. It would complicate things quite a bit, right? And so you want to get to the place where your brain doesn't have to work as hard, where you can form these habits. That's all good. Here's the bad part. The bad part is that once sin entered the picture, we have that same process the same way our brain works, but now what we do is we chunk sinful behaviors, right? And this chunking with, the, with these, it sounds weird using that, that name, but that's it. That's what they call it. And so this, this, this chunking or this packaging together of these things, um, there's, a, there's a, what they call a cue or a trigger, and then there's a routine, and then there's a reward. So a cue or a trigger, we'll call it a cue. A cue, a routine, or a reward, Right? And so let's use my little foray into the store for, for my wife as an example, right? Now, because 
your pastor is completely selfish and self-centered and a sinner, my cue was my time was encroached upon. My rights were infringed upon. See, here's the problem. She didn't get the memo that I'm more important than everybody else. That's the basic problem. And so that was my cue. My cue was, obviously, you don't know that I'm more important than everybody else here in the store. And so, and, and, uh, yeah, in case I get emails sometimes. I'm, I'm joking. It's facetious, okay? Um, but that's the cue. The cue is, man, I'm important. You don't recognize it. What's the routine? The routine is I, I throw a fit. The reward is I got my way, see? And this is what happens to us in our brains every single day. And you guys have all sorts of cues that happen. You know, when, oh, she's going to say it. I know she's going to say it. She said it, you know, and you go off or you're just looking for the, you, you know. And, and so the thing is, is that we have to recognize, man, if, if I'm going to change the habit, I got to change the way I think. I have to change the way I think. And this is not scientific, although it is. This is biblical. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying it's very clear. Man, by nature, as selfish people, we have sinful actions. And if we're not in the spirit, man, I'm just naturally going to follow these things habitually. So I have to consciously think about it. I can't follow my, my instincts. Man, Paul says that's sin. And so if my first line of defense is, man, I got to take control of my mind. Now, taking control of your mind, you have to tell your brain what to think. It just doesn't happen naturally. And here's what Paul says in verse 2. We just read through verse 2, verse 3, verse 5. Verse 2, he says, we're to concentrate on being like-minded, right? You have to focus on it. Number, uh, verse 3, he says that we must purpose to think more highly of others than we do of ourselves. And then in verse 5, he says, we need to let the mind of Christ be in us. And of course, the way that that's phrased, let the mind of Christ, means that we possibly could not let the mind of Christ be in us. So these are, are several things that we have to do. Man, I got to do this thing. Now, speaking to the Corinthians, Paul put it this way. We'll put it on the screen for you. He said, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that acknowledges of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And that's, that's the get right there. We need to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, because not every thought is godly, not every thought is good, and not every thought is led by, by God and by the Spirit of God. In fact, quite often, our thoughts are deceitful. They lie. The Bible says that Satan is the father of lies. And so we have this unholy trinity, Satan, the world system, our flesh, all conspiring against us to lie to us. And so we have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, no pun intended, but hold that thought. And, and notice the next area that Paul focuses on to achieve humility. The next area he goes into is our motives. We pick it up in verse 5. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Verse 8, he said, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, the Bible tells us that this act is the demonstration of God's great love for us. 
Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, <clears throat> amazingly, Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus did this with joy. I'll put it on the screen for you. Hebrews 12.2 reads this way, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, looking at the physiology of crucifixion, and I will spare you the details this morning, but if you've seen the passion of the Christ, you've got a vivid picture. And we've been through this before. We've talked through this before as a congregation. And you know the absolute horrific suffering that Jesus went through on the cross. Absolutely horrible. In fact, we use the word excruciating, and it's a word that means out of the cross. It gets its definition. When we talk about excruciating pain, it's defined, its definition comes from the crucifixion. And so Jesus going through just the most horrible way to die that evil men could ever think of. And he did it with joy. And you look at that and you read that and you say, how is that possible? Motive. That's how it's possible. See, because it it says that for the joy that was set before him, He endured the cross. What was the joy? It was redeeming fallen man. The joy was love for you and for me. You see, this, when we have motivation, the motivation helps us, proper motivation helps us in this. Let me use a very shallow and, and, and forgive me in, in, you know, proximity to talking about the crucifixion, but I'll use a very shallow example of this. Um, you know, if, if you're going to go on a diet, if you don't have any motivation, you're not going to be successful with the diet. When my son got married last November. I wanted to look good in the pictures. I lost 30 pounds. I was motivated, right? Now, what happened since? Well, I need somebody else to get married. But <laughs> I need some motivation. Now, what's the motivation? It's love. It's nothing shallow. It's nothing self-centered. It's love of others. And you moms, you understand this. You get this. I mean, you know, you think about it here on Mother's Day. You know, I, I, just, I, I just had this picture as I'm sort of contemplating these verses and I'm contemplating Jesus being motivated by love. I think of the love of a mom. I mean, y- your body goes through nine months of, of hell. I mean, your kids put your body physically through. I mean, if anybody else did your body, which kids do to it, they'd be in jail, you know. Uh, the ordeal leaves you with permanent scars sometimes. Um, you go through insane sleep deprivation. Now, by the way, the UN looks at sleep deprivation as a form of torture, right? And so your kids, they, they don't care. They put you through sleep deprivation, you know? You get puked on, you get peed on, you get pooped on. Um, on top of it all, they make you cook and clean for them. 
You know, your kid, when he wakes up in the middle of the night, doesn't say, hey, mom, no, really, I understand that you changed, 40, you changed 47,000 diapers last, yesterday and that you fed me and that, and that, you know, right after you put me into bed, after you give me the bath, that I pooped all over everything, you had to change the sheet, you had to change my clothes, you had to change my diaper, you, you had to take a shower yourself, all of these things. But, so, but if you wouldn't mind, if you get a chance, I'd like something. No, your kid's like, ah, you know, doesn't care. Feed me now, right? Now, what moms make you love your kid or take care of your kids? It's love. That's the motivation that causes you to go through all these things. And this is what Paul's saying here. He says, look, you have to let the mind of Christ be in you, but you also need to let the, the love of Christ be in you. You need to be motivated by love as Christ was motivated by love. He says, man, you, you just, you absolutely, you, need, you let his mind be in you, let his motives be in you. And finally, if you look, he says, we need to, to, you need to let Jesus be your master. And that's the third point. You need to let Jesus be your master. In verse 8, he says this. He says, being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. And therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now listen, God has two plans. He has plan A and he has plan B. Plan A is humility. Plan B is humiliation, right? And the issue is, the question is, are you going to be insistent in pride in the way that you live your life and refuse to bend your knee to the Lord, refusing to make him your master? The Bible says, here Paul saying, that your knee will bow, the question is when. The question is when. Will he be your master before you taste death? Or will, you, will your knee bow after death? And knee bowing after death is not the same place. He will master over you, but then the master overing you will be in judgment. Your eternity will be profoundly impacted. And so the issue is, man, it all comes back, man. It's like this, 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 this story we talk about in the beginning, the U.S. District Court in Giles County, Virginia. We either are going to, to humble ourselves and to make him God, or we're going to be puffed up in pride, and we're going to say, no, he will not be God. We will remove God, and I will do it myself. And so the, the, the issue comes down, what are you going to do to be humble? Are you going to be humble? Are you going to be humbled? Are you, will you choose in your life, man, I'm, gonna, I'm going to let the mind of Christ be in me. <coughs> I'm going to be motivated by the things that motivated the Lord. I'm going to allow the Lord to be the master of my life. Now let me tie all this together. If you would, go to the book of, of Acts chapter 2, and we're going to finish here. And I just want to sort of tie this all together. And we'll pick it up in context. We're going to read uh, verses 40 through 47. <clears throat> 
And it says there in uh, Acts 2, beginning in verse 40, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, talking about Peter, on the day of Pentecost, the Lord poured out his Holy Spirit, all the disciples filled with the Spirit, people wondering what it means. Peter steps up, preaches a message, and <clears throat> says there, Peter, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They, to take captive of their thoughts, to, to control the way their minds thought, they gathered together as a church and they focused on the apostles' doctrine. Christian, if you want to be humble, you have to control your mind. And the only way that you can control your mind is that you fill your mind with the Word of God. Your body will tell you, your internal feelings will tell you that the the compass of your life will say that that's north. And you read the Bible and the Bible says, no, this is north. This is the way that it goes. This is the way that your mind needs to be washed. And this is what they did. And so they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They're shaping their mind as to how they should think. It says they continued in fellowship and the breaking of bread. And there we have motive. Guys, there's something that happens here with us in our lives when we gather together like this. And, it, and church is not about Sunday. It's about the whole week. It's about you letting people into your life. And it's about us actually doing life with one another in a real profound way. And as you connect with people, as you gather together from house to house, as you let people in. And man, I just feel the Spirit of God pressing that on my heart. Man, that's a word for some of you here this morning. You've got to let people in. Let them in. And as you let them in, what happens is this, this dynamic of love begins to transpire in your life. And it's that dynamic of love that's going to help you to, to be able to, man I, man, I can humble myself. And I cannot be, you know, this rock that's got it all together and I'm just going to sweep it all under the rug and I'll just deal with it. No, I can gather together with my brothers and sisters in Christ and I can humble myself and I can say, I'm really struggling and I need to tell somebody and I need some encouragement. I need some exhortation. I need some wisdom. And this, my friends, is where we get it. You have to be connected to one another. And this is what they were. They gathered together in that way. And the breaking of bread and in prayers, this, guys, this is making the Lord master. We are going to break bread here in just a minute. The bread symbolizing Jesus' body broken for us. The cup symbolizing his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And, and this is us acknowledging on the first day of the week, you're God and I'm not. And so they gathering together as a church body, doing all of these things. The mind, the, the, the motive, the master, getting it all connected there. Verse 43, then fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done uh, through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. One final point, and then we'll pray and partake of communion and
worship the Lord. If you're a note taker there in verse 46 towards the end of it, it says that they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. You see that phrase, simplicity of heart? If you're a note taker, you might want to circle that. Nearby you could write this. Uh, Unworldly simplicity. Unworldly simplicity. See, here's what happens, guys. When we as a church will be the church and we will seek the Lord and, and, and we will pray, we will be in fellowship, we will be studying God's word, we will be just remembering the Lord in, in, in his table and, and this will be changing us and we will be those humble people that actually go out in the world. What happens is the world looks on and they see everything that's going on and they look at our lives and they say to us, there is an unworldly simplicity to your life. There's an unworldly simplicity as to what happens in your life. And I don't know what it is and I can't explain it, but all I know is that I need that. And some of you have had people come up to you and say, not just I want what you've got, but I need what you've got. Guys, the world needs what we've got. And so can I exhort you as we close and as we partake of communion today, can we be those people that humble ourselves? That we humble ourselves and we say, you're God and I'm not. And I will make your mind my mind. I will make your heart my heart. I will make you God.